open your Bible, please, to the book of Nehemiah, chapter number 4. Nehemiah, chapter number 4. I'm so glad you're here tonight. I really am. I appreciate you coming, and I hope you invited today. Preacher, how do I get somebody to come? It's simple. Blackmail and kidnap never fails, never fails. That's right. Make the effort. I'll tell you another word. Now, if you're married, you know what this word means. The word, and keep in mind, it is, let me get it straight. The word is a verb, not a noun. Ready? The word is nag. Huh? If you're married, you know what that means. Yeah. Your wife wants you to do something. You don't respond. She asks again. You don't respond. She brings it up. And before long, you think it's your idea. Yeah. Yeah. I've been married a number of years. 50, 50 some. I lost track years ago. But anyway, that's how it works. Just keep in body saying, body somebody that didn't come. I'll give you a hint. You get home after the service tonight, about 11.30, quarter or 12. Pick up the phone and give them a call. You don't have to talk real long. Just say, hey, I missed you at revival. Then just slam that receiver down, okay? Now, they may not come to revival, but I'll guarantee you something. I'll never forget you called them and invited them to come to revival. But seriously, someday this church will have one last revival. It's over. It's done. This could be the last one. Sing in heaven who you wish you had invited. How much more fervently will you wish you'd prayed? I believe with all my heart that time is short. We must move quickly and powerfully to bring people to Jesus Christ. Look in your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse number 1. But it come to pass <clears throat> when Samballot heard that we built the wall, he was wroth into a great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Many years ago now, I was listening to Paul Harvey, told me in the state of Massachusetts. I got up one day and went up in the attic of his house. In the attic was <coughs> all kinds of junk you find in an attic. In the attic was an old trunk. It had been in the family for hundreds of years, brought to America from England. Master one going through the contents of the truck. In the trunk, some old Civil War uniforms, some old family records. When he put all this stuff back in the trunk, he realized something. Due to shrinkage and warpage, he realized the trunk contained a false bottom. Maybe move the false bottom. Underneath, there were tons issued by the state of Massachusetts 186 years previously to his great, 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 great grandfather. The man did some genealogical work. And uh, what happened? Got the bonds, went down to a lawyer, and, and when the guy his lawyer, they went down <coughs> to the, excuse me, went to the state capitol and presented the bonds for redemption. Crazy went in the back room. Three hours later, he came out and said, gentlemen, I've got good news. However, he said, I've got bad news. 186 years of compound interest. Said right now, today, those two bonds are worth, you ready? Four, two, two trillion. $182,097,041. Here's a problem. Not enough money in the state treasury to cover those bonds. What'd they do? They agreed to pay him $100,000 a year for life. My friend, but what am I saying? Up in the attic, amidst the dust and dirt and the rubbish, the man found something of tremendous value. Text I read, Nehemiah heads back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. <coughs> On the way back, he starts to think. At one time, the power of God was manifest there. At one time, the glory of God had shown there. 
At one time, thousands of people come to worship God right there, but he gets back. The walls are broken down, just a great big heap of rubbish. As he stands there, here comes Samballot, God's enemy, and Samballot said, can God bring revival out of rubbish? Man, I've got good news tonight. Whatever your situation, whatever your temptation, tonight our God, the great God, the almighty God can reach down from heaven. Tonight he can touch your life and my life, and God can bring revival out of rubbish. Number one, first of all, very simple, the characteristics of rubbish. When I think of rubbish, two things come to mind. First of all, in regard, my friend, to order. Now think with me, please. Rubbish has no order. You all know trash off the dump. They don't have big signs that say, please put liver here. That's a good place for liver in a dump. Amen. They don't have big signs that say, put, put vegetables here. No. You take it out to the dump. You just dump it and get out of there. How come rubbish has no order? Hear me, please. God is a God of priorities. In the Bible, there are three great priorities. Number one, the first thing God demands is what, my friend? The gospel. What is the gospel? Paul said, Remember unto you, first, what's that word? <coughs> first of all, the gospel. How that Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the gospel. Understand that. Bible salvation, you must believe three things. Number one, Christ died for your sin. Number two, he was put in a grave. Number three, the third day he come out of the grave, he's alive, and thank God, because he's alive, with his mighty power, he can save you and take you to heaven, help you live for him, and serve him. God's first priority, not joining a church, not being baptized, not turning over a new leaf. God's first priority is the gospel. That's why Paul said, I'll quote it again, I'll deliver it unto you, first of all, the gospel. Let me ask you, that's the first thing God requires. You point to a time in your life when you knew you were a sinner. You knew then by an act of faith, not turning over a new leaf, by an act of faith, you invited Christ into your heart to be your Savior. That is Bible salvation. Number one, God's first priority is salvation. I use the word gospel. Number two, second priority is what? Godliness. That's right. That word first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That is more than that and his righteousness. If you're saved, your goal should be, I want to live as Christ should live. I want to act as Christ would act. What you please, as Christ would react. Paul said that Christ may be manifest. That means seen in my body. Friend, the Bible has no use for hidden Christians. No. If you're a Christian, you ought to be bold. You ought to be forthright. Jesus Christ was not crucified in a cave. It was publicly. Publicly, he was spit on for your sin. Publicly, he was mocked for your sin. Publicly, nails in his hands and feet for your sin. Shame on you if you're ashamed of him. He had a right to be ashamed of us. He was not. Hung on that cross, shed his blood. In fact, the Christ that took off the cross, Isaiah said, did not even, did not even resemble a human being. Think of that. His visage is marred more than any man, and his form than the sons of man. When they pulled themselves out, he gave everything, his body, his soul, his spirit, his blood, his life. Christ gave everything for you. But God help us, the average Christian says, how little do I have to do? How little do I have to go? How little do I have? Thank God he never asked how. The Bible says, what's the wording? The Bible says, 
He poured out his soul unto death. He poured out everything he had, Christian, to save you. And you sit back and want to rationalize how little do I have to give? God help us. God help us. I had a revival years ago in a church, middle of a cornfield in Decatur, Illinois, called the Little Flock Baptist Church. They had 40 people. And uh, one family comes Sunday, every, every service. Sunday morning, we had a teenage girl, Sarah, 14 years old, raised her hand to accept Christ, did not come forward. Wednesday night again, she raised her hand. She was not saved, did not come forward. Friday night, that little church, it was jammed, it was packed. The problem was it was January, 20 below outside. But man, that night in the church that normally ran about 20, 30 people, we had about 100 people. It was stifling in there. And I preached that night, finished preaching. I said, okay, if you're not sure you're saved, I want to pray for you. Raise your hand. She did. We're going to sing a song. You want to get saved. Man, that night we had five people come down to get saved. Sarah did not respond. I said, okay, let's um, one stanza. Then we're going home. As we hummed, I saw her. She got in the aisle, headed forward. I realized something. The personal workers were all busy. No one to deal with her. I left the platform. I went down. I said, Sarah, what did you come forward for? She started crying. She said, preacher, I come tonight to accept Christ. I want to be saved. Amen. I said, okay, now, Sarah, you got to help me out. you got to help me out, okay? All the personal workers are dealing with somebody else. Lead them to Christ. Who do you want to show you how to get saved? I'll never forget it. She turned and started crying. Then she pointed. Then she said this, Brother Mark, I want my daddy to be the one to show me how to be saved. Said, sir, to him, it's so very, very real. And my dad lives in the home. Said, preacher, I want the same kind of Christianity in my life. And my dad has in his life. Because to him, it's so very, very real. Can I tell you something, sir? In 51 years, I've heard great testimonies. That's the greatest testimony I ever heard. That girl said, my dad's real. My dad's genuine. My dad's the same in our house as in God's house. What will your kids say about you? Oh, yeah, at home, the music's different. At home, the attitude's different. At home, there's griping. My friend, hear me, hear me. What you are in your home is what you really are spiritually. Oh, it's tough enough to live for Christ in a godless world. How much worse when you get no help at home? Oh, I hope you'll be an asset to your family. You'll live for them. You'll pray with them. You'll read the Bible with them. That they might have an impact for Jesus Christ. God's first priority is the gospel. Number two is godliness. Number three, hang on, here we go. Giving, yeah, you preachers always talk about money. Surprise. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about Bible. Ready for this one? They gave first, there's that word. First of all, their own self unto the Lord. What is that? Total dedication. You say, preacher, that's asking a lot, man. Read the Bible and pray every day. Go to church three times a week. Risk being laughed at and ridiculed and thought strange but witnessing. But the Mark, that's asking way too much. Uh, okay, if I quote the Bible. Huh? Paul said, I beseech you, I beg you therefore, brethren, with the mercies of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable. Paul said, look at Christ on the cross. So Marty didn't look like a man. 
covered with blood and bloody sweat. Then you tell me he asks too much. He does not, my friend. Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. It drives me. We thus judge if one died for all, then we're all dead. Hear it. We should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but live unto him. He's worth living for, my friend, after all he's done for us. And God help us not to be stingy with him when he had nothing left to give. A hollowed Christ is what they pulled the nails out of. Nothing left to give. No blood left to give. No sweat left. He gave it all. And some of you will come and take him as Savior, but yet do nothing for him. Just say, I'm so happy I'm saved. My friend, the love of Christ constrains us. That's the word. After all he's done for us, we should live for him and serve him. I was uh, in the grocery store years ago. I spent a lot of time in a grocery store. So do you, I notice. Yeah, anyway, uh, I was in the grocery store. And then lie to him, it was a guy. It was summertime. The guy, uh, <clears throat> kind of a nice-looking guy. The guy had on, are you ready for this? He had on a muscle shirt. I better explain that. I can tell by looking, none of you guys know what a muscle shirt is, okay? But, but if you got real muscles, you wear a shirt that's pretty tight, and it shows all those big muscles there. The guy had on a muscle shirt. <clears throat> and the cashier's taking him out, and apparently she knew the guy. They're talking back and forth, and pretty soon it was time to pay. I saw the guy, forgot and paid for his food with food stamps. Oh, she said, you're not back to work yet? He said, you bet I'm not back to work. He said, I was supposed to go back, back to work three times. I managed to wiggle out of it. He said, I'm not going back to work. He said, I'm not going back to the welfare, the freebies, and the food stamps all run out. Then he said, I'll go back to work. Then he said, I'm quoting him, I'll just live off the government. Now, here's what he said. I'm living off the guy behind me that's working and trying to make a living. And lying behind that young man, my blood pressure soared to about 5,000. I'm going to be honest, Fred. I don't mind paying taxes, someone that cannot work, someone that cannot find a job. I understand that. Somebody's too lazy to work. The best answer I know of is God's answer. It's from the Bible, sir. If a man doesn't work, then a man doesn't eat. That's Bible. But the church of Jesus Christ is full of welfare Christians. They come and sit. They love the singing. They enjoy the fellowship. Hey, you have potluck there first in line. They never go on visitation. Never spend time in prayer. Yeah. Sit home on prayer meeting night. Sort of trying to get the power of God. They're welfare Christians. You read your Bible and turn the television off. You'd find what it says. If the Lord be God, serve him. God didn't save you to be a spectator. He served you to be a participator in the great commission. And try and touch somebody else's life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, first of all, the characteristics of rubbish, number one, is order. Number two, hang on, number two is close but different, odor, okay, odor. Now, what are you saying, preacher? I'll explain it to you. Isaiah chapter one, they come in church, got their finest clothes on, had their Sunday motor go to, they were dinner on Saturday, had their bath taken, man, they walk in, and God leans down and hails deeply, and God said, this whole thing is an abomination unto me. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word abomination means this, rotten 
smelling. Now wait, their clothes are clean, body's clean. Why would God say that? Because their soul is full of unconfessed sin. Let me explain something to you. Sin does not evaporate. Sin does not dissipate. Sin leaves one time, sir, if, that's conditional, if we confess our sin. When's the last time you confessed your sin? I got news for you. It's still right there, hindering you, holding you back, making you a coward to witness. When sin comes in your life, watch it. The first thing you stop doing is what? Witnessing. That's right. Bible, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak it to your shame. Paul said, shame on you. You should be witnessing friends, neighbors, workers. Why? Not a mental problem. Not a speech problem. It's a heart problem. When sin comes in your life, the first thing you stop doing every time is what? You stop witnessing. And somebody pays the price in Mrs. Heaven because of that situation in your life. I was preaching years ago in Chisago City, Minnesota, about an hour north of Minneapolis. <clears throat> the song leader, his name also was Brother Mark. Brother Mark did a great job leading the singing. He taught in a Christian school. But Sunday morning, for some reason, he got up. He made fun of me. He ridiculed me. He cracked jokes about me. I didn't believe somebody knew that in the house of God. I just didn't. Let me tell you something, friend. Being the strong, dynamic, victorious Christian, I determined I would get even, okay? And here's what I come up with. Ready? Sunday night, <clears throat> I'm at the back door. His wife pulls up. Let's, uh, he pulls up, lets his wife and the kids out. He goes to park the car. I open the door. He, he, I said, boy, Sunday afternoon is short. She said, too short. I said, ma'am, I have a question. You don't mind answering this. My wife and I have no children. Do you feed the kids before church or after church? Brother Mark, she said, we feed the kids before church. We get home, put them right to bed. They get a good night. She said, now, it's always something simple. Tonight, she said, we had hamburgers. I said, glory to God, I love hamburgers. I do. Amen. That's great. And so we're on the platform. Brother Mark leads us singing. Does a great job. He sits down. I lean over. I go, he said, yes, sir. I said, is there a Wendy's or a McDonald's around here? He said, no, sir. The nearest hamburger place is seven and a half mile down 35, right-hand side. There's a McDonald's. I said, wait, how about uh, White Castle? If you're saved, you got to love White Castle. Amen. How about White Castle? He said, no. Hardee's? No. Three guys? No. He said, preacher? He said, listen to me. He said, preacher, the nearest hamburger place is right down 35 on the right. I said, are you sure? He said, I'm positive. I said, that shocks me. He said, why? I said, never mind. He said, no, why? You won't believe this, I said, but I keep smelling hamburgers sitting here. I can't figure out where in the world it's coming from. He looked at me, he said, Preacher, that's what I had for supper. Got any search. So I give the guy a couple of search. I don't say a word, not a word, okay? Wednesday night, I'm at the back door. He pulls up, lets the wife and kids out. He goes to park the car. His wife come in. I said, well, I said, you have a good day? She said, yeah. I said, hey, tonight I went to Hen's house for supper. I said, ma'am, it was great. It was wonderful. I said, we had fish tonight. I said, what do you all have? I said, Preacher, tonight for supper. She said, 
we had roast beef. I said, well, that's great. That's good stuff, okay? Now, we're on the platform. Boy, Brother Mark Lee says, singing, man, you're doing a great job. He sits down. I lean over. I go, Psh. he said, yes, sir. I said, uh, are there any cattle around here? He said, not many. I said, how about resters? Any resters? He said, brother, we're in the same thing. The nearest restaurant is about seven miles down 35 on the right-hand side. There's just no restaurants here. Wow. I said, something wrong with my nose. I keep smelling roast beef up here, and I can't figure out why. He said, preacher, he said, that's what I had for supper. I had more search. So I give, the guy's about to bust me buying certs, okay? I give him some search. I don't say a thing. Friday night, the last night, the crowd is coming in. And I'm at the back door. He pulls up, lets his wife and kids out. He goes to park the car. His wife come in. I said, lady, you had a busy day. You taught school. Then you had a soccer game. Here you are at church. I said, probably you didn't have time for supper. She told me what she did. I doubted her salvation. If she was saved, I doubted if, if she was much of a Christian, okay? What did you have for supper? You won't believe this. Preacher, tonight for supper... We had liver. I cannot believe a Christian would eat liver. The Bible describes it, the abomination of desolation, spoken of with the prophet Daniel, that has to be liver. Nothing on the face of the earth could be worse than liver, okay? Now, we're on the platform. Why, the Mark leads the singing, does a great job. Down, Pastor Cable gets up to uh, make the offering, and, and I lean over, I go, he said, yes, sir. I said, I read in the Minneapolis Tribune today that there's a big outbreak of the flu. He said, there is. I said, I want to ask you a question. I said, it's hit public schools. The question is this. You had chapel right here today. Yes, we did. I said, did some kid get sick in chapel with the flu and throw up? He said, what? I said, did some kid throw up in chapel? He said, I don't think so. I was here. Why? I said, man, something smells putrid. Don't you smell it? He said, I don't smell a thing. I said, you ought to go see your doctor, buddy. Yeah. I don't know how you come in. It smells horrible. It smells putrid. I said, I was certain when I walked in that door in chapel today, some kid threw up. On second thought, I said, it smells a little bit like liver. When I made that statement, here's what he does. He said, Brother Mark. That's what I had for supper. Guy more sir. I give him some more search. He stared at me. He said, Preacher, I can't believe this. He said, You have a nose like a bloodhound. Now wait, we're concerned what our breath smells like, what our body smells like. Hear me, hear me. Well, God's concerned about what your soul smells like tonight. You wouldn't offend a friend by body odor or bad breath. And yet, my friend, when you fail to confess your sin, all the stench, all the filth is right there waiting. It's in the nostrils of God. Oh, how sad, how sad. Get rid of it. Confess it. Say, I'm going to live for God and serve God. After all he's done for you, you're a stench in his nostrils. Shame on you. Number one, the characteristics of rubbish. Number two, and I'm through. The condition that prevails in a life of rubbish. Now, when a Christian has rubbish in his life, two areas are affected. Number one, first of all, adamant of heart. What does the word adamant mean? Hardness of heart. Look in your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse number 2, halfway through. Will they revive the 
stones. What do stones speak of? Talking to Christians, three times Christ told them, you've hardened your how long since you walked in that door? Your pastor studied and prayed. He preaches. You walk out the door and got nothing. Don't blame the preacher. It's called hardness of heart. Huh? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Here's the Bible. Deceiving your own self. You learn to rationalize your sin. Rationalize your lack of confession. God does not rationalize. God faces the facts. And my friend, God never speaks to some of your hearts not because you're such wonderful Christians, because you played the game and lied to God and lied to yourself and hardened your heart. And someday you'll stand with a coffin of somebody in hell because you played that game and hardened your heart and God can never get a hold of you and lead you to witness to that person. That person is in hell today because you hardened your heart against God. He couldn't stir you and move you to tell that person the greatest thing they could ever hear, how to get saved. It leads to adamant or hardness of heart. Number two, and I'm through, my friend, and it also the ashes of indifference. Look in your Bible again at verse uh, two. Well, they revived the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned. What's the phrase? Are burned. What does that mean? The fire has What's the fire? In the Bible, Fire speaks of spiritual zeal. Jesus said, I'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. At Pentecost, it was cloven tongues of fire. Keep that in mind. In the Bible, fire speaks of zeal and fervency in witnessing. Oh, let me ask it. When's the last time you witnessed? Could I have your attention, please? Thank you. When's the last time you witnessed? Co-worker, neighbor, relative, classmate. See, when sin comes in your life, I'll repeat it. The first thing you stop doing is witnessing. It's not reading your Bible. It's not praying. No. When sin comes in, immediately you become a coward. And you stop witnessing. How sad. And because of that, someone may never hear the gospel. And because that someone that might have gotten saved will never get saved. But a pure life and a pure heart gives you a boldness. A boldness to share. A boldness to give your testimony. A boldness to give out a track. For when sin comes in, my friend, that boldness leaves. I held eight revivals in Faith Baptist Church of Pekin, Illinois. We're training a thousand. I was there one time and <clears throat> I, 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 I stood up to preach. I saw a man visiting. It was Friday night. He was sitting the second row from the front on my right. A man, I'd guess about your pastor's age, late 60s. But anyway, uh, no, he was not that old. Your pastor isn't either. He just looks up. But anyway, okay, here we go. There was a man sitting there, okay. I, know, I hadn't seen him before. I knew he was a visitor. I preached that night. The man listened intently. I finished preaching, do what I always do. I said, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I want to pray for you. If you're not sure you're going to heaven, will you raise your hand? That night in that church, they had 800 people there, and about 23 people raised their hand. 
If you ever going to sing a song, you want to get saved, come and tell Dr. Sorensen or Dave, one of the, we started singing. That night, 19 people got saved. Next night, I stood up, opened my Bible. There's that man, second row from the front, same guy sitting right there. I preached that night, had them back their head. I said, you're not sure you're going to heaven. I want to pray for you. Will you raise your hand? Again, he raised his hand. I prayed for him. Saturday night, the big thing in Peoria in those days and still was Caterpillar. In those days, they did not work on Saturday. We had, I think, about 1,100 people there that night. I said, you're not sure you're, I said, raise your hand. He shot his hand up again. I preached that night, give the invitation. That night, 24 people walked down the aisle and got saved. Sunday morning, they had a big push, big push. Almost 1,400 people in that auditorium. I stood up, read my text. I looked, there he is, the same general area. Sunday morning, <coughs> I preached, finished preaching, had them bow their head. I said, if you're not sure you're saved, I want to pray for you, raise your hand. He went just like this. Sunday morning, 34 people raised their hand to get saved. We're going to stand and sing a song. You want to get saved? Come and tell somebody down front. They'd love to show you about Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing. But wait, before I said that, I said, I'm going to pray. While I was praying, that man stood up, came all the way down, sat on the edge of a chair on the very front row. I said, okay, let's stand. When I said that, come to his feet. He run down. He grabbed Dr. Sorensen and cried out, I want to get saved. I want to get saved right now. Jake Gray, a godly deacon, come down. That morning, 42 people found Christ as their Savior. Beautiful spring day. I'm on the steps afterward. People are coming out. All of a sudden, Brother Jake brought the man out I mentioned. He said, Joe, this is Mr. So-and-so. He got saved today. I said, you made my day. You have. I said, to my knowledge, it's the third time you've been here. I've been praying for you, not just in a service. I've been praying for you every single day. I said, sir, I'm happy you got saved. God bless you. Brother Jake said, preacher, he wants to ask you a question. I said, yes, sir, go right ahead. He said, uh, he said, uh, my dad was not really a good moral man. Never went to church, never read the Bible. He said, right now, right now, is my dad in heaven or is my dad in hell? I said, sir, I'll be totally honest with you. I cannot answer that dogmatically. I'll tell you why. Maybe one day your dad did receive Christ and then backslid. But what you tell me, it would appear your father had never, ever, ever accepted Christ. I said, sir, if that's true, then your father would be in hell. There's always that chance. Maybe as a teenager, a young person, he received Christ as his Savior, but based on what you told me, I'm sorry, your father would not be. He said, preacher, that's exactly what I thought. He said, thank you. We shook hands. He started to leave. I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, sir, I can tell you one thing for certain. Wherever your dad is right now, he's glad you got saved this morning. I said in Luke chapter 19, a man died and went to hell. In hell, his main concern was his family and friends might get saved. I said the Bible says when someone does get saved, there's joy in heaven. I said, sir, if your dad's in heaven, he's glad you got saved. Your dad's in hell, he's thrilled that you got saved. The man left, the crowd was gone. 
I walked halfway down an empty church auditorium to come to the platform and get my Bible. I got halfway down the aisle. All of a sudden, a thought hit me with tremendous impact, and the thought was this. They're saved in heaven. They long to see folks saved. They rejoice to see folks saved, but there's nothing they can do about it. The lost in hell, they weep and beg and pray. Family and friends might get saved, but they're totally helpless. Wake up! You realize tonight the only people in God's vast universe can get folks saved is you and you and you and you and you. Heaven cares. Hell cares. Christ cares. But do you really care? Just a game you play. No one ever comes because of you. No one ever walks the aisle because of you. You're a freeloading Christian that's set and does nothing to conquer death and hell and see people saved. You want revival or you want rubbish? Rubbish has no cost. Revival's costly. But thank God it's worth it when a friend of yours finds Christ as his Savior. Bow your head for prayer. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.